Right now, we're pushing the boundaries beyond the seven nanometer technology node. So the size of our features are in, you know, the tens of nanometers scale. Dr. Rudy Wojtecki always knew that he wanted to work for IBM. One thing led to another, and that's exactly what he's doing today, blazing new trails at the Almaden Research and Innovation Laboratory. In this season two episode of Bringing Chemistry to Life, we speak with another member of Chemical and Engineering News' 2020 Talented 12 about their work and trends in their field. I'm your host, Dr. Paolo Brayuca from Thermo Fisher Scientific. We began by asking Dr. Wojtecki about where he found his original scientific inspiration. I really gravitated towards uh, chemistry and, and synthesis in particular because um, it, it was a way of manipulating matter to, to build uh, useful molecules, useful materials in general. So it's part of that creative process that I really enjoy um, exploiting, I guess, science and, and that understanding of the world around you. IBM is not the first place you would think of for a chemist, right? Uh, and yet chemistry is your, your main background. But of course, you need to cross-link your chemical skills with you know, the, the engineering skills that go into making these electronic devices and, and all the technology that, that is behind. And, and I, you know, how much would you say that your general interest in science and you, you being a curious person has is, uh, is, is been important so far for yourself? Um, I, I think that's a, a very uh, critical uh, mindset to have going into to working at, at um, some place like a, a research um, um, outfit like uh, IBM Research in general, because it 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 helps you engage with other people and in very different project areas. Because there may be some part of those projects that um, you you may not have thought you could contribute to it, um, but looking at it through a different perspective um, and providing some uh, additional uh, value through that perspective it, it is something that I think uh, helps you broaden how you can impact uh, technology in general. So, um, you know, I, I've been engaged in a lot of different uh, project areas within IBM. Um, some of them are in electronic devices. Uh, some of them are in, in fundamental studies of, of chemistry. And uh, in, in that technology space, there's, there's so many different ways you can apply that, that skill set of chemistry to different problems, from you know, fabricating devices to packaging them um, to, to making you know, uh, your, your conventional transistor-based devices to making some of the more um, exploratory uh, devices involving things like superconductors or maybe unique material sets. So having that curiosity in general as a, as a fundamental um, uh, passion is, is something that really uh, is well-suited for, for a research environment like this. The link between chemistry and polymer chemistry at that in IBM, um, even as an undergraduate, I didn't really make that connection. But uh, in graduate school, uh, my my mentor, my research mentor, Stuart Rowan, um, he worked for the same group as uh, what, who became my first manager, uh, Al Nelson. 
And at that point, you could see how uh, chemistry played such a significant role in the microelectronics industry, where in Almaden in particular, it was the, the birthplace of the chemically amplified resist. And this is what really enabled Moore's law and en enabled uh, us to reach the, the technology nodes that we're at right now from the use of those type of, of polymeric uh, responsive materials. So the, the opportunity of fulfilling your dream of joining IBM came through the connection between your PhD mentor and, 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 and you know, his, his, basically his network, right? Uh, so eventually you made it. So was was that was it an obvious move after you completed your PhD and, and your, your graduate studies? No, actually, um, I was looking at um, some other postdoc opportunities to, to work in um, things like drug delivery and, and producing um, macromolecular architectures to do that. And uh, this opportunity at IBM came about because there were two people that retired at Almaden and it just so happened that uh, my skill set in, uh, in my research project at Case Western was in making some very complex uh, polymeric architectures that uh, required some very advanced NMR techniques like uh, diffusion NMR, uh, fluorine carbon, uh, 2D NMR. And so it was a, it was a really good fit uh, given my skill set. And this opportunity that came about was a, an associate engineer. And most people that want to be research staff members uh, generally go through a, a postdoc position. So it was a little bit of an unconventional way to, to get into IBM and then to go from there. So is it true that you worked on a number of side projects as you were uh, you know, in your initial uh, uh, position in, in, in the NMR team? And, 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 and this sort of... Uh, you know, involvement in these site projects was actually instrumental in your career development inside the organization. Absolutely. This was a significant goal of mine to become a part of this research organization, given its, you know, very distinguished history and all of the amazing technology that has come out of the, the organization and uh, the, the company in general. And the people at Almaden have uh, that scientific reputation. So, uh, it, as I joined, of course, I want to work with some of the world's leading scientists in, in polymeric uh, synthesis and developing uh, materials for electronics. And so um, being that very curious person, I, I talked to people and, and tried to leverage the skill set of uh, NMR characterization and using uh, some of these techniques like diffusion NMR to advance their research and to help them characterize some of the materials that they've been making. And that link um, was, was very valuable. What's really unique about the, the uh, IBM research in, in Almaden is uh, there's this collegial uh, atmosphere here where if, if somebody needs help, um, people tend to help them. Right? Or if somebody has questions, there's, there's a very collaborative uh, environment here. And I, I think that's uh, particularly unique um, because the other end of the spectrum is um, siloing individual projects, not talking to one another. But that's the exact opposite of, of what I um, experienced here at Almaden. It, it really is a research community. And I guess being curious and uh, able to work across disciplines and, and understanding problems or being interested in problems is, is what makes 
this involvement, right, with the, with the broader research community at, at the sites easier? When it comes to electronic hardware, it, as you said, it, it's a very interdisciplinary field. Uh, my background in, in polymer chemistry and synthesis may be able to help address one part of a much larger problem, but you have to have teams of people. You have to have uh, groups of people that have different perspectives, whether it's an electrical engineer or a designer or uh, somebody that's heavily interested in uh, or, or very well equipped to do things like chemical vapor deposition. Um, so it really takes all of those different perspectives to move things along. And so um, in, in order to do that, um, you go much further working on those teams rather than trying to work alone. I'd like to go down into some of, of the details of what you and your team are, are pursuing. And, and, you know, what, what can you tell us about uh, the work you're, uh, you're leading at the moment in IBM and, and what's the directions and, uh, you know, how do you apply your chemical knowledge to, to you know, the, the, the technology problems that IBM is, is addressing? There's one focal point that we're working on right now, and that is in um, area selective depositions. It's a very simple goal. And that is if you envision a pattern surface, and let's just, for the sake of this discussion, we just say it's a planar surface. And you may have lines of a metal and spaced in between that metal, you'll have uh, dielectric. And that may be something like silicon. It could be silicon nitride, silicon oxycarbide, things along those lines. So with that pre-pattern, the idea is you want to expose that to a process that would then selectively grow a film on one of those surfaces. So, so you want to create topography on your surface. So you start with a coplanar surface, you want to deposit a dielectric, and that creates maybe some bumps on the surface. And that's actually particularly useful um, in advanced technology nodes. And there are other applications here you can also do. For instance, um, you can put a metal selectively on a metal. All of these are very useful processes if you're going to actually build a device or extend your ability to make devices at smaller and smaller feature scales. Uh, and so that's the overall problem that we're trying to address. And again, coming at this from the perspective of applying chemistry and synthetic development to that, this field has been established in the last uh, 15 years by some uh, amazing pioneers that have demonstrated that type of work. In the literature, we, we observed that there were uh, maybe a handful of organic molecules that were used to achieve that. And that small number of, of molecules made us wonder, well, maybe we could uh, synthesize a, a, a better version of these or ones that achieve um, more selective growth or being able to deposit films at higher temperatures or reducing things like uh, lateral overgrowth if it's an isotropic film formation. We, we applied that, um, that lens and were able to show that with the introduction of things like cross-linking groups, we could uh, reduce defectivity uh, of, of that type of process. And, and, and maybe it's useful to, to say that if you're working in um, developing a technology for electronics, uh, the bar is incredibly high for you to 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 make something uh, 
uh, or implement one of these processes in, in a technology that would go into high volume manufacturing. And I guess it gets more and more challenging as you squeeze more transistors in, in, into the same surface, right? And so the distances become smaller and smaller in, in your patterns. So you, your, your level of precision needs to actually increase while you keep the defectivity very low. What kind of chemistries you leverage for you know, growing these films on uh, semiconductor types of surfaces or metal type of surfaces? Can you give us some examples? For an area selective deposition, you typically start with these pre-patterned surface surfaces. And as I said, you, you generally start with a metal versus a dielectric. So if you want to have an organic material selectively stick on one of those surfaces, you have to exploit some type of surface chemistry that may only happen between a metal and an organic and doesn't happen between a dielectric like silicon, silicon nitride, and silicon oxycarbide and that organic material. So in graduate school, uh, I, I worked on uh, developing a synthetic method for making mechanically interlocked rings. And what we did is we used a templated uh, synthetic approach that involved uh, uh, metal ligand interactions. And uh, in that respect, we, we exploited things like nitrogen-containing ligands that bound uh, in a very selective manner with a, a metal like zinc. We've done iron, we've done a variety of other metals, but that supramolecular interaction between a metal and an organic is the same thing that we exploit for this area selective deposition. So the ligand may not be um, this bulky organic, it may be as simple as uh, something that looks like a surfactant where you may have a phosphonic acid at one end of the molecule and at the other end you have some reactive groups or some long chain. And that interaction between the ligand and your metal, you can exploit that uh, to, to, to have your organic selectively stick on the surfaces. And it, it's that type of, of supramolecular metal ligand interaction that we exploit to achieve this type of deposition. What kind of selectivity or special resolution you can achieve with this sort of uh, chemistry? Is it in a nanometer, sub-nanometer kind of scale? It all depends on your incoming structure. Right now, we're pushing the boundaries uh, beyond the seven nanometer technology node. So the size of our features are in you know, the tens of nanometers scales, but that isn't necessarily a fundamental limitation for this process. I haven't pushed it beyond those structures that we, we, we typically uh, get from our, our, our colleagues and collaborators at IBM Semiconductor Research. So, you know, there are groups at Almaden that have uh, the capabilities of, of moving atoms on a surface and being able to look at atomic resolution um, but we, we, we haven't um, gone beyond uh, the, the, these incoming structures at this point. So, but I don't, I don't think there's necessarily an uh, upper boundary or maybe a lower boundary in terms of the, the size scale for these. We hope you're enjoying this episode of Bringing Chemistry to Life. Stay tuned at the end of the episode for information on how to access content recommendations from our guests, as well as information on how to request your free Bringing Chemistry to Life t-shirt. And now back to our conversation. You mentioned lens, and, and this uh, makes me think about lithography again. Uh, during, during last year's Future Festival, you 
described uh, um, the use of additive lithography as a sort of a, a, a an additional tool, right, to 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 improve selectivity on on the, on, on on the films you grow. Can you describe uh, how that works? Yeah, certainly, and maybe again to put this in context for the overall trends that you can observe in in uh, semiconductor research in general, you you can observe that as you push resolution, um, your resists tend to get thinner and thinner. Um, if you compare using something like uh, a resist for uh, in printing with that in a 248 nanometer exposures versus uh, extreme ultraviolet, the, the thickness of your resists are very different, much thinner when they come to the EUV resist if you're pushing resolution limits. And, and you start to see other types of materials for those uh, smaller feature sizes and printing and EUV come online and start to be implemented like inorganic resists, for instance. And those are still quite thin. So where do you go from there? And um, in a conventional lithography sense, you can envision, um, well, I, I can certainly create a monolayer of an organic material at a surface, um, but if I were to expose that, you know, what would I do with it? And um, your ability to develop, and typically with a resist, what you'll do is you'll expose it, and there'll be some type of liquid developer that you uh, use to remove um, portions of the film, unexposed uh, portions of the film in one tone, and uh, in another, uh, the exposed areas. And that's what allows you to print those features so if you have a monolayer of material, uh, and even if you were to remove portions of that, well, what do you do with that? Um, if you try and uh, do pattern transfer through some etching process, that organic material etches very quickly, and it'd be very difficult to get a very nice pattern into silicon as a result of that. So the other thing you can do with that, because these are organic materials tend to have no dangling bonds that would nucleate um, different types of ALD growth, um, you can use those type of monolayers as a way to selectively grow your film in an area. So uh, this is to, to contrast uh, a conventional way of going about lithography to challenge this uh, idea that instead of subtracting and then etching, well, maybe you can do an exposure and then just grow a film where you want it. Um, another point to this, or another part to this this idea, was this idea of additive lithography. If you have the correct type of molecules, and if you start with a pre-patterned surface, well, now you have a, a type of uh, photoactive material that will selectively adhere to a metal portion of your film. And so it gives you uh, another tool set to allow you to have uh, a self-aligned type of of component to your resist. And this idea of self-aligning uh, touches on one of the, the immense technical challenges as you push that critical uh, resolution or as you start to try and make even smaller feature sizes than what we can do today. And it, again, if you think about how a device is made, it's, it's layer by layer by layer by layer, right? Again, uh, starting with the front end to the middle of the line. And each one of those steps requires an alignment process. So if you're using lithography to align to that front end so that you can uh, put contacts to your devices, you better have something that is incredibly precise because 
uh, deviations to alignment in the nanometer regime uh, can lead to things like a loss of uh, device yield or shorting of devices. Or even if you get um, a wire too close to another, you can start to lead to device variability or hot spots in your devices where there may be some thermal migration or, or, or increases in local thermal temperatures that can cost you performance. So having more processes that are self-aligning is something that I think um, may impact our ability to make these devices in the future. Is there anything else disrupting uh, at the horizon that you can share? Or is there anything upcoming that is particularly revolutionary in the, in, in, in the work that you guys are doing over there? One area, um, and I won't go into the exact specifics, but that notion, that, that thesis of, of rethinking um, materials in general it is one that we're exploiting for uh, materials in, in the electronics uh, applications. And if you think about it now, the, the conventional perspective on materials is, um, is generally a structural material. So if you look around your, your room right now, or if you, if you think about the materials that you use that are uh, plastic, are all, that are our polymers, in those type of materials, um, every effort is made to minimize bonds from breaking. And that's sort of a, a traditional notion of how people have, um, ha have thought about making new materials. In, in this idea of using a, a dynamic bond, um, it, it's the exact opposite. It's being able to break and reform bonds reversibly. And you can do that with um, these dynamic covalent type of, of units like disulfides that uh, will undergo disulfide metathesis when they're exposed to, to light, or Dils-Alder chemistry that will undergo reversible reactions, uh, retro Dils-Alder reactions at elevated temperatures. And if you put those in a material, you can achieve uh, all uh, a spectrum of different types of macroscopic properties. So for instance, you can make things like shape memory polymers, you can make self-healing materials. So if I have a, a polymeric material, I can scratch it or I can break it and then mend it back together. And even, that sounds simple, but that's very difficult to achieve with your conventional polymers. And I mean, if you break a bottle, you're not gonna put it back together. Um, and, and so um, using that type of process of being able to break and reversibly reform bonds is very useful. And I think it has a number of different types of applications for uh, electronics, uh, some of which may be in uh, packaging materials, uh, some of it may be in these selective depositions. I think the application in the electronics space uh, makes a lot of sense because you can you can extend your ability to fabricate increasingly complex devices, whether they're modular devices for things like uh, heterogeneous integration or whether or not they're um, useful in uh, a variety of other types of, of applications. I think it certainly um, is a very attractive perspective to use it in that. I we are coming to the end of our chat because uh, I cannot I cannot keep you here all day, of course. Uh, and and uh, there's always a final question I ask. But before going there, there's one thing I really, really have to ask. 
Is it really true that you invented a new method for uh, decaffeinating coffee? Uh, we did. Uh, it, and that was, uh, you know, a, another story unto itself. And we were actually uh, working on this 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 uh, project where we were trying to leverage what were often referred to as these solid functionalized particles to try and remove different materials from a effluent stream. So for instance, we design a polymeric particle with a receptor that we wanted to bind specifically to, to molecules so that you could you know, add this to, to remove impurities in um, oil and gas or uh, in medical applications. So, and, and, and caffeine was uh, a very nice model system for this and may have applications by itself. Well, n none of those really worked particularly well when we tried to design a receptor specifically for caffeine. And we were looking at things like hydrogen bonding. And you can imagine uh, designing a hydrogen bonding receptor and trying to remove caffeine from water doesn't work well because water also is a very good hydrogen bonder. So you had a lot of competition uh, between what you're trying to remove and the solvent that it's in at the time. So uh, we looked at uh, different types of platforms like um, in, in the case that you referred to, uh, clay was particularly useful in uh, binding to, to caffeine. And people have shown that before, but what we did a little bit differently was selectively removing caffeine and trying to leave as many of those other uh, flavor molecules as other components in coffee. And so what we did is uh, we, we tried to find a, a more environmentally friendly way to go about removing caffeine and decaffeinating coffee in a selective manner to retain the taste. And so what we ended up doing is uh, pre-treating our, our clay uh, and saturating it with some of the other components in, in coffee. And that allowed us to remove uh, caffeine up to I think 93 mole percent, as we could see it. And um, it was a simple solution, but it's something that worked very effectively. It's a fascinating discussion, Rudy. That, that th thanks, th thank you very much. Uh, you know, you, you work on some... Uh, incredibly fascinating uh, challenges. And uh, you work with a, a lot of extremely talented people in, in, a, in a very stimulating environment. So but if, you, if you had to stop and look back, what would be one piece of advice you'd pass on to a young scientist just starting in their career? I would say that continue with science to anyone that's interested in it and that uh, is thinking about pursuing a career in science. We certainly need uh, more scientists in, the, in this world to tackle some of the uh, societal problems in general. I mean, there's all those are there's a host of of, of challenges to solve, and in things like reducing uh, the num the amount of of greenhouse gases, uh, in making materials more efficient. Um, there's so many different problems to to look at and solve. So I would strongly encourage anyone that's interested in science to pursue those careers. And I think it, it, it benefits uh, community locally, as well as our, uh, our, our society as a whole. Uh, there are so many different types of, of benefits that you can, um, you may not even anticipate your work contributing to. And I, I often like to think about some of the, um, you know, fundamental experiments from, you know, when people study the fundamentals of the atom. Uh, 
at the time, they couldn't see direct applications for any of this. They just wanted to understand why this behaved the way it did. And, you know, as a result of those fundamental experiments, we, we now have things like MRI that takes advantage of those fundamental concepts and understandings. And, and, and just think about that alone, the impact of having the ability to, to look inside um, people that are still alive instead of having to perform surgery. I mean, it's a huge impact uh, that you can make. And, and sometimes the, the impact uh, may go beyond what, what you could conceive of at the time. So I, I always think it's fascinating to see where technology goes in unanticipated directions because you can only see so far in terms of your information in the landscape of, of what you think is possible. But a lot of times things happen that um, you, you wouldn't have even guessed about. So uh, th those people interested in science, yeah, please, <laughs> please continue to pursue those careers and, and uh, continue to be engaged and interested in that. That was Dr. Rudy Wojtecki, researcher at IBM's Almaden Lab and one of the Chemical and Engineering News' Talented 12. Thanks for joining us for this Season 2 episode of Bringing Chemistry to Life and keep an ear out for more. If you enjoyed this conversation, you're sure to enjoy Dr. Wojtecki's book, video, podcast and other content recommendations. You can download them visiting thermofisher.com bctl and this is also where you can request your free Bringing Chemistry to Life t-shirt. You can find the URL in the episode notes as well for a super easy access. Just check your podcast app. This episode was produced by Matt Ferris, Matthew Stock and Emma Jean Weinstein.